MSW Media. Jeffrey Epstein's death has been ruled a suicide, but that hasn't ended all the speculation or the investigation against him. Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I have never seen so much speculation and so many theories uh, about any case uh, until this one. And that's saying something because, uh, you know, we obviously from 9-11 to the JFK assassination, there is there's been speculation about various, uh, uh, you know, uh, events uh, throughout our lifetimes. Well, I think that this also has the element of I, I don't know any other way to put it, but except for ick. Because, you know, all the extent to which he was enslaving these young girls or, you know, sexually assaulting them and other people who were involved in this pedophile island, there's so many elements to it that just, uh, I think, compound everything and raise it to that level. And then on top of it, you have President Trump, you have former President Clinton. You ha- I mean, th- that's part of what spins us out of control when it comes to speculation. So before we get to all the, you know, sort of ideas and conspiracy idea- th- thoughts... In your career, have you ever had someone who either you were prosecuting or have defended who has committed suicide in in jail? Okay. So I have had uh, people I prosecuted commit suicide. And then I've had clients, uh, once I now on the other side, who've talked about or threatened to commit suicide, but none have ever gone through on the defense side. But on the prosecution side, they did. Do you? Can you share with us anything that is like the process by which there's an autopsy? I mean, I, obviously, this has so many eyes on it, has so many things that would contribute to speculation that it was nefarious, that somebody else might have been involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but are, are, you know, are inmates who you perhaps uh, are able to alert the the authorities or the warden or the, the jail that they have talked about wanting to commit suicide? Is there a process? Yeah. I mean, when I was a prosecutor, you could, the as a prosecutor, I could let the um, officials at the prison know about all sorts of things. I mean, usually the concerns that I had and the issues that I was alerting the jail to were, you know, this guy's p- cooperating. Please do not put him with other members of the same gang, right? <laughs> or whatever, sure. uh, or things like that. You know, um, you know. Please keep these two individuals separate. They're both witnesses in the same case, or something like that. You know, issues like this um, were often acute, and I would find out about them after the fact. In other words, you know, so and so hurt himself. So and so hurt others. You know, um, he's been a victim of whatever. Those things often I would find out after the fact because um, they would arise at the prison. Um, I, I would love to be able to tell listeners that our prison system, uh, even our federal prison system, is so sophisticated that you know there's all this constant communication between prosecutors and local law enforcement and prison officials. But that is not the case. 
Um, you know, here in Chicago, we have an MCC, a Metropolitan Correctional Center, just like New York does. They're built, I think, around the same time. I'm not sure, but they're, they have very similar functions. And I had a good relationship when I was a prosecutor with the with some of the officials there, and I would be in, in contact with them. But, you know, it was definitely something where if there was some issue that had to be taken care of, I would follow up many times to make sure that uh, that that uh, someone was protected or there were issues, you know, special needs were taken care of and things like that. So in this instance where there's so much talk about what the guards were up to, where they were at the time, you know, that there was nobody actually watching him, what are your thoughts as, as far as that? Because people are wondering, well, how did, how did we not know about that sooner? How come there wasn't maybe a journalist or how, how come that wasn't discovered or revealed at an early time when you, can, when you consider the inmates that have been in this facility, including El Chapo? Wow. Well, I would just say that most of the time, um, the listeners of this podcast and the general public don't care about what's happening to prisoners in prison. They don't really pay much attention to what is happening to people who are imprisoned. And it's really only when there's someone who's very high profile, A, and B, something goes horribly wrong, that we care. People don't care if El Chapo's needs aren't fully taken care of or if he's not uh, you know, receiving whatever attention he needs. People only care if he commits suicide or something else happens, right, or escapes. Um, and so often what happens with our prisons is there's, um, there's a lack of oversight or attention paid to what hap- it happens, sometimes a lack of resources or other things. And it only is when these events happen. Um, you know, I had a a, a, a a defendant that I prosecuted escape from the uh, MCC in Chicago in a very daring move where he, um, uh, you know, broke out of his cell and, cli- and made a rope out of uh, bed sheets and dental floss and rappelled down 17 stories. What? Yeah. And said that he wanted to kill the prosecutor and the judge. I was the prosecutor. Right. So we we're very there was a lot of concern there. But, um, you know, that no one was focused on security at the MCC until he escaped. So I think it's just the reality of of what happens with prisons and the fact that um, there isn't enough attention paid, uh, I think, by of how people are treated in prison. And so when something like this happens, suddenly we're shining a light on a on a system and a process that is far from perfect. Wow. And that's I think that's what a lot of people have questions about. And then, of course, you have questions about the autopsy, how that was performed. You know, at the, at, at, there's this is one of been one of the most active threads I think you've had in a bit, too, because there's so many loose ends to in people's minds. Absolutely. And that's, a, I think, a good place to bring in our guest uh, who knows a lot about the subject and has spent a lot of time in the New York MCC where Epstein died. Um, let's bring in now James Gagliano. Uh, he is a former supervisory special agent uh, for the FBI in the, in, uh, in New York. Um, he wa- He spent over 25 years as an investigator. He was a SWAT team leader. He was a member of the FBI's hostage rescue team. Uh, and before that, you know, he served very admirably uh, in Afghanistan um, as a member of the military. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Well, let's just get started with, I'd say, the most important news uh, recently. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's death was ruled a suicide what what was your reaction to that? Well, you know, I, I I hate to I'm not shilling for you here, Renato, but I have to say I did steal one of your on point quotes <laughs> about this, and 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 initially right after this happened, 
you suggested he was either, I think you used the terms, incompetence, indifference, or corruption. And, and, and I was a signatory to that. I'm like, man, we've got to look at all three of those things. Um, I think now with what we know, obviously the New York City medical examiners weighed in, and, and I think I've read enough and talked to enough people inside the correctional administration in New York City that I think we can rule out the third. I, I don't believe uh, this was related to corruption, but I think it is a combination of incompetence and indifference. And I'm sure we're going we're gonna to peel away the levels or the, the, the skin of the onion here and kind of get down to where this actually broke down. But this was a colossal breakdown in the system, and it infuriates me because I feel like a man that has made a mockery of our system for so long um, was able to once again cowardly avoid being held to account. So I'm disappointed, um, especially for the victims, because I feel like, um, again, they did not get their opportunity to see him go away for the rest of his natural life. I mean, he cheated him out of that. But I'm sure we're going to talk about all the different forms of restitution that are available, and I trust that the government, I have confidence in our government that they're going to make sure that that happens, guys. Well, let's so let's talk about the corruption angle. What I meant by that, uh, and the reason I threw that out as a possibility, is whenever there is a circumstance like this, uh, it certainly leads to questions. You would investigate whether or not, for example, that uh, officials at the prison had received payments or some some other reason to give a, a different treatment. Uh, to this particular inmate. Of course, there had been some allegations about something like that going on in South Florida and the state institution that Epstein was held. Um, what is it specifically that kind of causes you to uh, put that off to the side as a possibility? I, I'm, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. I just want just trying to tease it out for the listeners. Great question, man. And you know me, I think we've known each other long enough now at CNN, you know I'm anything but a fence center, but I am going to, I'm going to split this one down the middle here. First of all, I'm a firm believer in Benjamin Franklin's famous line, and I don't want to, I don't want to bastardize it here, let me make sure I get it right. It's something like, three can keep a secret if two are dead. And, and I spent 33 years in the government, eight years in the military, 25 years in the FBI, and I've just never been a, I don't want to say a fan of, but I've just never ascribed to the, the conspiracy theorist, um, you know, that, hey, everything that happens, there's got to be something behind it. You know, Bush knew that, uh, you know, the 9-11 hijackers were going to do this and allowed it to happen so we could go to war. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor in 1941 and allowed it to happen to draw the United States into war. I just don't ascribe to that. But having said that, your point about, gosh, and, and I don't want to use a benign term here, but I'm going to, the inconsistencies or curiosities attached to that 2008 case down in Florida where we know the, uh, at the time the U.S. attorney was, for the Southern District of Florida was a man by the name of Alex Acosta who briefly served in the Trump administration, I think for a year and a half or so as a labor secretary, but made this beyond curious decision. And I don't want to get out of my lane because you're the attorney, but made a beyond curious decision to allow this guy to plead to state charges that were, you know, generally speaking, when the state and the federal government work together, you're seeking to bring the hammer down. So if the state can bring charges that result in, uh, in, in, in more exposure time-wise or restitution-wise, you proceed that way. If the federal government can do it, you proceed that way. But in this case, Mr. Acosta, 
elected not to bring federal charges. He wrote a non-prosecution agreement that uh, obviously Jeffrey Epstein's lawyers eagerly signed on to and allowed Mr. Uh, Epstein to then serve. I want to say it was a bizarre 13 months where he he could come and go, you know, during the day. He only had to sleep there at the prison at night. He could he could go at, at you know to his to his place of work, and he could go home. And just yeah, I think there's a lot of people, particularly the journalists down there at the Miami Herald, that looked at this and said, you know, here's a guy that has infinite means. And as I've argued so often in my in my in my law enforcement career, people say, well, our system of justice is. You know, it's it's unfair to minorities, or it's 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 racially motivated. You know, certain people in in certain demographics don't get the same treatment. And I've pushed back and I've argued, I don't think that's the case. I think our system of justice is unfairly tilted toward the rich. And if you're rich and you have infinite means, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein owned an island. You know, if you've got infinite means and you can assemble the greatest coterie of attorneys that 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 you're able to, and you've got infinite means to, to cash bail and you know you know you know politicians and you know people in the system yes i think that you get a better shake than some poor person that commits the same crime and is then hammered just you know just just in a far different way than somebody with means so that's the part for me that when i looked at this and i said yeah corruption should be looked at because a perfect case in point was what happened you know, just over a decade ago, where, where Jeffrey Epstein was able to make a mockery of our system. It didn't happen this time, and um, unfortunately, he still got to call the shots because he got to take his life and avoid the public spectacle of a trial and avoid his accusers coming and, and, and being able to stand up in court and saying, you did this. He was able to avoid that. But do I believe that there was some nefarious conspiracy afoot do i think that people rich and powerful people you know people have said well it's the president and well it was former president clinton and well it was prince andrew and all these wealthy people and powerful people that had relationships with mr epstein across the years that somehow they were able to get to some lowly staff member some line member at the corrections administration and were able to allow this to happen that's the poor brother that I just don't just doesn't square with me as as being a valid or reasonable argument. Yeah, I um look, I um I have seen no evidence to suggest that there has. There's been a lot of speculation. This is the first time I will tell you that my tweets and articles are uh, amplified by both the left and the right. Uh, I get lots. Of, I've had a lot of conservative folks, uh, talk, uh, you know, respond to, uh, and people on the right respond to some of my pieces uh, positively recently about the subject. I, I will just say, I, I think you're right. I mean, what I was talking about when I said corruption was exactly what you said was Epstein paying somebody off. You know, that's yep. the most uh, straightforward thing. I mean, and certainly you can't rule that out in a case like this. Uh, whenever something unusual happens, uh, you at least want to take a look at that. Uh, I will say that um, one thing that I thought was interesting about the suicide is that apparently um, he had one of his own medical uh, folks, or, you know, his estate, his lawyers had one of somebody that was that was hired by Epstein's estate um, to to take part in the the medical examination. So. Um, they they feel you know they they feel confident or have signed off on the suicide 
uh, cause of death. I thought that was also something that was uh, very interesting that happened recently, speaking of the ways in which money can influence uh, the process. Obviously, for, oh, most of us wouldn't be hiring a, a separate uh, medical person to, to be part of that process. Uh, 100%. And, and, you know, to your point, um, are rich people, are powerful people, are people of infinite means able to gain the system? And, you know, I've been, I've been keeping track of the New York Times reporting on this. And, I mean, just the fact that he was able to, you know, there, there are only a few places inside the Metropolitan Correctional Center that do not fall under, you know, closed-circuit TV, camera, videotape, surveillance, scrutiny. And, and one of those places is the place where people are able to meet, inmates are able to meet with their attorneys. And, of course, you don't want that videotape because people are entitled to counsel and they're entitled to that counsel being private and those conversations not being recorded or, or, um, <clears throat> or memorialized. So he was able to do this almost daily, where he would meet with a bevy of attorneys, and um, there, there are reports again in the New York Times that he had a he was able to put money into different inmates' accounts. That, that now for the for the listener, you know, commissary is very important when you're in jail. And again, this he was not in prison; he was in a place that that was a pre-trial detention facility, meaning somebody that was waiting to go to trial on federal charges at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. But he was able to have money put into other inmates' accounts, and the argument is this was a way to influence them. Obviously, you know, people that get charged with sex crimes are at the bottom rung when you're in jail, so obviously they're targets for other inmates to, to try to hurt or try to make a name for themselves. And uh, even being in a place like the special housing unit, the shoe as we call it, um, there's still opportunities for inmates to get hurt and inmates to get killed. What, what's shocking to me, guys, is... You know, I spent 25 years in the FBI, 20 in New York City, working a spitting distance from the MCC. Have been in there many times, going back to early 1991-1992 when John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano were housed there. I'm just, uh, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted that a guy, you know, on July 23rd could have arguably tried to take his life, is found semi-conscious on the floor of his cell with marks on his neck, and is put on suicide watch and then removed. And again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm certainly not a Ph.D. in psychology. And those are the folks that would have talked to him and made the determination to take him off of it. But the fact that he could have convinced them that he was no longer a suicide risk, again, you know, Renato, it goes back to your point. It's like these are just curious things that you go, would you have handled a typical inmate this way or was Jeffrey Epstein able to do this, again, to cheat the victims out of their day in court because he was Jeffrey Epstein? One perspective that I will bring to it is, and I'd be curious what your what your thoughts are, is it it, it seems to me in my experience that – Suicide and attempts at committing suicide are fairly common um, amongst inmates, and uh, they're not uncommon. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who's, who was a deputy U.S. marshal for many, many years here in Chicago, and was at our MCC in Chicago a lot. And he said that you know, and, and he also was in charge of the lockup that we had in the in the courthouse. And he said that you know, there are many, many times in his career where he. Uh, you know, had to deal with inmates who wanted to commit suicide or tried or almost got away with it, uh, you know, almost uh, were able to accomplish that. I'm, I'm curious, is that your experience as well? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let's, let's, let's understand the layers at the, at the correctional administration. So 
Um, the MCC, just just as way uh, by way of background, built in 1975. I want to say that it was it was built with about 460 or 470 inmate capacity in mind. I think they're at just under 800 inmates now. So, you know, look, that's a story of uh, that's a story of the corrections administration across the country. Um, they're always understaffed. They're always overpopulated. I think 2.2 million Americans are currently incarcerated across the state, local, and federal levels. And I think 7.7 million people fall under the supervision of the Corrections Administration, meaning they're out on parole or probation. And look, uh, that's an argument to be made that, you know, when we look at the system, our system of justice, the system, the part that I was in, which was enforcement, the part that you were in and still are in, which is the prosecution portion, and then there's the corrections portion. The one that always gets short shrift, and you know this to be true, is corrections, because we want to make sure we enforce the law and arrest the bad guys. We want to make sure that we prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law and make sure they get what's coming to them. But then in the corrections piece, once they get that sentence, we wash our hands, we move on, and we say they'll handle it. And this was a perfect a perfect um, uh, example of the four levels, the, the, the prison officials, the managers, the line supervisors, and then the actual line staff that there being a breakdown at every single level, how could you have allowed this to happen? How could you put two people on shift that night, as has been widely reported, that had worked back-to-back doubles? One of them was not even a, a regular corrections officer or line staff member. Um, how could you allow them to skirt their duties, meaning at you know following around 3 o'clock in the morning to stop doing their 30-minute cell checks? How could all those things, it was almost like a cascading set of failures. How could that happen on, I mean, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, probably the most famous inmate that we had, we had in jail at that point in time. How does it happen? It was a breakdown of the system at so many different levels. And it's, again, I, 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 can't, I hate to keep beating this dead horse, but it cheated the victims out of their day in court with this man sitting at the defense table, having to hear about his crimes, and then allowing victim impact statements at the end. We, they were cheated out of what their proper restitution should have been. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with you about the victims. I, I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, this past week kind of detailing all the ways in which uh, Epstein's death uh, really makes things harder for victims, not just in the uh, in the fact that, as you point out, there's no public trial. So it's not just that they won't get to see, uh, which, as you point out, you're correct, that they won't get to face him in court and see him pronounced by a jury to be guilty, but... A lot of the evidence that was collected, you know, they won't even won't even see the light of day. They, you know, he won't be called to task in that regard. But it's even harder on the civil side for them to uh, pursue things. Uh, it's just it's it's going to make it more of a challenge overall. And I had some people, you know, tell me, you know, uh, respond to me. Some, you know, folks on Twitter and and listeners say like, well, why did you have to say that? I mean, it's kind of depressing and this and that. And I just said it because that's the reality. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who I've been talking about and we'll we'll definitely talk uh during this conversation about you know uh Maxwell his uh, his uh, his accomplice um you know and wh- whether or not others will be brought to justice and I don't I don't doubt that the the government is very vigorously investigating them although I know there's also some conspiracy theories about that but it is harder than you might think to pursue that and so I I do think that you know the question of what um is out there for victims is is important and I will just say I agree with you 100% about 
um, the resources that are given to uh, BOP, the Bureau of Prisons. I mean, the reality is we have too many people incarcerated in the United States, well, in my opinion, period. But regardless, one thing you can't dispute is too much for the amount of resources that we are putting into that system. And when I had a, 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 a defendant of mine escape from our MCC, there was a lot of similar questions that were raised, and a lot of what it boiled down to is, frankly, just a lack of resources and uh, person power there. Yeah, um, I agree. Very well said. Can't uh, disagree with that one bit. And and I think it is, you know, for the layperson or the person that's listening to your podcast to understand, I mean, the goals of correction. You know, I think most people kind of are familiar with the with the number one goal, which is obviously punishment. We want to inflict pain or suffering, and I don't mean pain in a physical sense, but we want to make sure that somebody realizes if you do the crime, you're going to do the time, whatever that time lays out to be. But, I mean, it's also it's supposed to act as a deterrent to future people to look at it and say, hey, I want to, I want to have my own island, and I want to bring you know, underage girls in, and, and what's the worst that's going to happen to me? Well, in this instance, here's what the precedent was, and this is what you get. Does it act as a deterrent effect? You know, the incapacitation part, it prevents a, a serial sexual predator from being out there and able to, to continue to, to, to target young girls, minors, the, the most helpless among us, young, young minors. And then the rehabilitative part, and I, I think at his age that was kind of a foregone conclusion. But most importantly, this is the part that I think rankles me and rankles so many law enforcement types, is the fact that he will not pay restitution. And yes, you probably understand the law much better as far as on the civil side, or can you, can you pursue some of his accomplices? I'm certain that the Southern District of New York is going to do that. That's their, that's their charge, and that's what they'll do. They're the best in the business, and, and that'll happen. But when you talk about restorative justice, yeah, you can, you can go after the estate. You can try to make sure that a man who is a gazillionaire with a G, um, that money goes to the victims. But in restorative justice, how do you change what happened to a 15-year-old girl? How do you remove that scarring? How do you, how do you remove that violation? And gosh, guys, this is the one thing that I can say. My wife is a deputy county attorney in, in Orange County, New York, for family law and juvenile justice. And I say all the time, I've seen the worst ravages of war I've seen, in a combat theater. I've seen the worst ravages of man against fellow man. I could not work the violations that she's worked, which is pedophiles and sexual predators. I just couldn't do it. I, I, I just don't think I would be able to do that. And in this sense, where's the restorative justice? There will never be restorative justice for what was stolen from those women. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I had to work, uh, side note, I did work, and have to, I, I did work child exploitation and human trafficking cases, and it was very, very difficult. Even just the child exploitation, like people who are, you know, what distributing or producing child porn or things like that was hard just to see images and to talk to, you know, to to those uh those uh individuals but then on the it was harder or when it was people you know when you were dealing with actual you know people who are there in front of you actual people that you're meeting who are victims and who are underage is very very difficult uh i will um say too um you know i'm going to get to what myself i'll talk a little bit more and from the legal end about what happens with accomplices and what what can go to victims but i think um, uh, one thing that I think listeners may be interested in understanding is 
what is you know what does a special housing unit mean? How is that different than regular population? And then what is why wasn't he? And a lot of people say, well, why wasn't he on suicide watch? How could that possibly be? Oh man, you just you, you just you just teed me up perfectly here to to kind of break this down and disassemble this. So um, the special housing unit is, and in this instance, there, there are several wings at the Metropolitan Correctional Center that uh, are considered the special housing unit. And Jeffrey Epstein was in what we call Nine South. It was probably the, if, if I can do gradations, it was probably the least restrictive of the special housing units. And again, I don't want to be tempted to go, boy, who did he buy off or how did he end up there? But somehow, some way, that was negotiated that he was going to go to Nine South. Now, on July 23rd, he was housed with a fellow inmate, a guy by the name of Nick Tartaglione. And I'm familiar with him because he was a New York City cop who's down there uh, facing charges on a quadruple homicide. Yep, your listeners can look that case up. It is uh, unbelievable, and, and it has not gotten as much national attention probably as it should have. So the two of them are put in the same cell. On July 23rd, uh, Tartaglione uh, notifies the guard and says that he discovered uh, Jeffrey Epstein on the floor, semi-conscious, not really responsive, with marks on his neck. Now, this was indicia of the fact that he had tried to kill himself, but when they began to do the, you know, when, when they brought in the, the prison psychologist um, to talk to him and find out, you know, what happened and what he was thinking and, and the usual, um, Epstein then says, no, no, I was attacked in my cell. So, of course, they talked to Tartaglione. He says, that's absolutely untrue. I had nothing to do with this. You can look for DNA evidence or you can look for forensic evidence, whatever you want to do. It didn't happen that way. Well, now, hindsight being 2020, the argument is Epstein tried to kill himself and then was concerned about being put on suicide watch because i got to tell you guys, suicide watch, when you want to talk about I mean, just draconian. First of all, you're naked in your cell with a, with a coarse paper kind of smock that, that ties in the back, kind of like a hospital gown, but not made of that type of material. Um, you don't get any blankets. You don't get any sheets or anything like that. And your cell is never completely unlit. It's always got at least a dim light on so that you can be observed. And, and I don't want to go on record because I'm not sure exactly whether it's every 15 minutes or every 10 minutes, but it is... You know, there's there's no camera in the cell, but they're constantly checking on you. So, of course, no inmate wants to be on suicide watch because, you know, you're not getting a chance to get out into the exercise yard. You're not getting a chance to, um, um, you know, have the, the lights off in your cell so you can sleep. It's just a, it's a, it's a tough place to be. But obviously those restrictions and those requirements are put in place to prevent people from trying to kill themselves. Well, somehow, and again, it goes back to Renato, what you mentioned about his manipulative behavior. Somehow he, along with his attorneys, was able to convince the jail staff that he was no longer a threat to himself, and he was taken off that. Now he's put into a cell. This time, and again, it goes to that, you know, the conspiracy theories uh, abound, and this gives the, 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 the conspiracy folks, you know, plenty of fodder, but he was put back into a, sh- a cell in the regular 9 South Special Housing Unit, but without a celly or a cellmate, as we say. He was put there by himself. Now, the other thing here, which just really jumps out at me, is there are only a few cells in the shoe that have windows in them that can actually look down on where the guard station is. He had one of them. Now, the argument here, again, is he was able to watch to see 
the routine of the folks that were supposed to be coming around and checking on him every 30 minutes. And at 3.30 that morning, which was the last check of his cell, he could have, and again, this is just a theory, he could have ostensibly looked down, seen that the two guards who were supposed to be checking on him were asleep, and then elected to go ahead and make his move to hang himself. You know, I think the one thing that is under that people aren't focusing enough on is him getting off of suicide watch. In other words, you know, I spoke to someone in law enforcement who told me that that usually doesn't last months. That's something that, you know, lasts for whatever days, maybe weeks at a time. And I suspect that Epstein said all the right things to get off of suicide watch. And, you know, one of the issues that people, I think, don't focus enough on or understand is that. You know, look, people, whether you're in prison or in the legal system, you have rights. Um, and if he's if he says all the right things and the you know, the person that they have that he's that he's talking to, you know, is like, well, there's you know, it doesn't appear to be a reason to keep him on it. It's very it's very hard to, you know, try, you know, and you know, be very difficult for them to try to keep him in suicide watch if there didn't appear to be an acute reason for doing so. And so I think. You know, the re- it'll be very interesting to see. There has to be documentation uh, for him being off of suicide watch. That's my understanding of BOP regulations. And so I'm very interested to see what that uh, report looks like. Absolutely. And we also have not gotten the the defense attorneys. And, and again, I can't even speak to one because I think he had a bevy of them have already made a move to have a uh, a concurrent or simultaneous um, um, autopsy, toxicology report done by their hand-selected, uh, you know, medical examiner, hand-selected forensic pathologist folks. So that's going to happen. And and look to your point, I, I agree. You're quite familiar with the prison system, and you know that there there still is due process there. But we also understand that the rights that attach to citizens on the outside do not attach on the inside. You have no Fourth Amendment protections there. They can kick the door into your cell, and I'm being a little over the top here and outrageous, but they can open your cell up and they can they can inspect anything and they can search. They don't need a warrant. They don't need anything for that. And obviously they can, your communications are not protected. They're going to be reviewed um, by the folks, stuff that comes into you and stuff that's, that's sent out. But to your point, we do not believe in cruel and unusual punishment in the United States. Some people can argue that solitary confinement is cruel and unusual, and I don't know if I would necessarily disagree with them on that. But there is due process, and especially with the, with the, with the, with the lawyers that he had, I'm sure that you know, Jeffrey Epstein being Jeffrey Epstein and being able to be as manipulative as he was, no, that's not what happened. No, I'm not a suicide risk, and made sure to set it up. So that he spent a week on suicide watch, then was removed from that and put back into a cell on 9 South, and then was calculating enough to understand when the best opportunity to do this. Because I don't want to get too macabre but, or morbid, but my God, it is not easy to kill yourself in a special housing unit cell. The, 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 the cells themselves are eight to nine feet tall. There's nothing you can hang something from. You don't have a plethora of equipment. You don't have cordage. You don't have the things that you would need to do it. And to do it in the manner that he did, um, gosh, it's just not easy to do. And, and again, without getting too morbid about it, for him to be able to do this in a certain way that he knew no one was going to be able to check on him within that 30 minutes and, and ostensibly resuscitate him, I mean, it was just his last brilliant means of, hey, I'm still in control. You know, I'm in jail, but you don't control me, and I'm going to do this my way. Wow. 
Yeah, I think that that is a very good way of of sort of talking about that, or kind of punctuating that topic. I couldn't agree more. I was that's one of the most frustrating things I think about hearing of his death was that it you know Jeffrey Epstein still had some measure of control. Yep. It was a big middle finger to the process. You know, yep. one topic that I want to talk about a little bit and switch gears is um, is talking about the investigation of his accomplices, uh, because Maxwell in particular, um, not only have I had a lot of uh, Twitter followers and listeners and people asking me what's going on with that or why haven't they arrested her yet, but I've seen fellow uh, legal analysts, people who I, I generally respect, you know, saying a lot of things that I think are irresponsible, saying, well, you know, the FBI should have already done this. They should have already arrested. You know, the, you know, the, this is already being done and raising kind of questions or I think feeding a, uh, also some theories or speculation or conspiracies about why she hasn't been arrested yet. And I just I want to say a little bit of my piece on that. And I'd be curious what your reaction is. And, and my my thought is, first of all, I think the case against Maxwell and other accomplices is harder to, to make for prosecutors to make than people realize. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, not only that she knew that the girls that she was recruiting were underage, but that she knew that they were going to be abused by Epstein. And you can believe that her, especially if if his estate are paying for her attorneys, her expensive attorneys are going to make sure that their argument is that, look, she thought, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, she'd say a lot of old guys like uh, pretty girls around them. I thought he wanted to have them around or doing services or massaging him. I would have never guessed that he was raping them. And if he if I thought that he was going to do that, of course, I would never put women in that situation, young, these young women in that situation. And I suspect that the SDNY does not want to fail at this and send a, a message to victims that, you know, even after Epstein's death, his accomplices can get away with things. So my guess is they're being very careful, very thorough. They have eyes on her. They've got a, a check at the airport. So if she goes to the airport or something, they're going to know at that point and they could begin the arrest. But they don't want to put themselves on a clock. In other words, once you arrest somebody, you only have a limited amount of time to you have to give them the discovery and there's going to be a trial date set and you suddenly um, are on a uh, you you have a limited amount of time to put your case together. They want to spend as much time as possible and develop as much evidence so they have the the best and strongest case they can. Well, my friend, we're supposed to disagree on things, which makes your podcast so much more titillating. <laughs> but I'm going to say once again, I agree with you 100. Um, percent I learned as a young FBI agent in the early 90s when a when a New York City cop clocked me over the head and said, hey, kid, shut up. It's not what we know. It's what we can prove. That's the way the system works. And, and that's kind of the way I, I dumbed it down to street language, but that's kind of the way that you more, much more eloquently just explained. It's to do these cases. I, I laughed just watching Twitter and social media when the FBI obviously went to the, you know, went to the location, uh, the island, you know, the, you know, Epstein's Island has been kind of derisively termed and conducted this uh, this search, and it happened in the immediate aftermath of the hanging. And I was like, guys, you don't know if that has anything to do with the hanging. And if you were to ask me, I would tell you it probably doesn't. That was probably in the works. They have a, you know, investigations have a particular 
timing. They have a particular cadence. You can't speed this up. You can't slow this down. It's the way our system of justice works. Sometimes the gears crank slowly, not quickly enough for all of us. But having been in it like you've been in it, um, guys, that's the way that this works. So stop reading into it. Now, to your point about the... To your point about the enablers, and that's what they are. They really are enablers. You're right because you're a lawyer and I'm not, and that's exactly the right way that you would frame that. It frosts me and infuriates me because I go, if this woman dares to say, I had no idea. You spend how many decades around this man? You spend how many decades recruiting underage girls? And he's going to tell you, hey, I just want photo ops, or hey, it'll just make me appear hip down in South Beach if I've got these young aspiring starlets who just got off of a, a, you know, a, a bus from Iowa, and, and they want to they wanna see the bright lights in the, in the big city. It's infuriating. But you're right, because you're speaking about it from a legal perspective and you're a hundred percent right and that's why Renato to your point this has to be done carefully and patiently and of course these people especially especially the one you're referring to is going to be lawyered up to the extreme so they've got to be careful those people have got to be held to account too and have got to be brought to justice that's part and part and parcel of this because they were part of the system, and that's what this was, the system that allowed this heinous crime to happen over and over and over again. But I agree with you 100% for the folks that think that the FBI should have ripped her passport away and should have you know, grabbed all these other people that were at parties or rubbing elbows with this guy or might have been involved on, a, on an email chain or a texting chain, and how could they not know? Well, again, it goes back to what that New York City cop said to this dumb young kid when I, was, when I became an FBI agent and showed up in New York and said, it's not what we know, it's what we can prove, and that's what they're working on right now. I've been seeing so much of that uh, recently on Twitter and elsewhere. It's an easy way of getting, you know, 5,000 likes. Like, let's just arrest her now. Or why are, Why don't yeah. they have her yeah. in custody? And it's like, I see these people who should know better. It's like, look, you were a prosecutor, right. man. Like, you know better than that. Like, stop stop feeding people's uh, expectations because they don't know. They're t- trusting their judgment. And the reality of the situation is that what it, it feeds into these conspiracy theories like, oh, Right. You know, Bill Barr is holding back the FBI or whatever, and I, I'm not as I'm uh, very much not his fan. I'm uh, very critical of things that he said and done. But um, in this instance, um, you know, w- w- if there's no interference, I would expect the same thing to be happening, which is a lot of careful uh, case building by the FBI. What I see is. You know, we we just saw a raid on an island. That's a pretty uh, substantial step. That's going to take a lot of resources and time. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, can you imagine operationally pulling that off? I mean, that seemed like a pretty extensive operation to me. And, and not just on the not just on the enforcement action, which to your point uh, had to have the logistics and the and the personnel resources to to pull that off. But as you know. Once you go in there armed with a search warrant and you grab a bunch of things and you bring them back, somebody has to painfully go through every single item. And then you've got to catalog it. You've got to inventory it. You've got to return what's not relevant or salient to the investigation that you accidentally picked up because you just weren't certain what it was. And then you've got to do that 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 investigative part, which is to sit down with the intelligence analysts and the financial analysts and go through things. What does this mean? Somebody spoke in code here. What do these two decimal points mean? And why is this here? And that takes time. And unfortunately, I think, 
you know, we watch Law and Order, and the investigation is concluded in the first half hour, and the prosecution concludes successfully in the second half hour, and we go, hey, guys, why doesn't this stuff wrap itself up in, in one hour? And it just doesn't happen that way. So I have confidence. I agree with you. I understand the misgivings about uh, the attorney general. I think he'll stay on the sidelines on this piece, let this thing flesh itself out, let the Southern District do what they do so well. And I anticipate, I cannot say when, but I anticipate there will be superseding indictments. There will be more people that will be held to account for this this colossal failure of the system, and that's what it was, a failure of the system. And God bless the folks at the, at the, the Miami Herald that stayed on this story and kept it in the news and doggedly pursued it, because if that hadn't happened, it may not have had the resolution it is going to have. And look, I'm not rooting for Jeffrey Epstein to have killed himself, but he needed to be held account, and whether that was to spend the rest of his life in jail or to, you know, not that it was a death penalty case, but to forfeit his life, he needed some type of restorative justice for the victims of this crime, of, not this crime, of these crimes. And uh, I, I anticipate we're going to see more than one or two more people that are going to be wrapped up in this. This is about when listeners are like, where's Patty? And uh, I have to say, James, uh, you guys have covered this so thoroughly and with uh, such dynamic coverage that I- I've been engrossed in this. So <laughs> that's why I've been hanging back a little bit. But I want to make sure we do get to some of the listeners' questions. And since we're talking about the island, uh, there was a question uh, that uh, about whether or not during the raid on his island, who participated? Did NY FBI lead the sweep or was it all initiated by the attorney general? And what part will Barr have in the re- review of the material? Ah, uh, okay. That is a that's a great question. And and first of all, let's just separate two different things. Jeffrey Epstein's death is being investigated by the Department of Justice's Inspector General's office, which is run by the exceedingly capable Michael Horowitz, who's just in my in my estimation a a rock star. I mean, look, every decision he makes you know, whether it impacts my friends or people that I consider to be foes, I respect his decisions. He's not, he's not, um, he, he's not apolitical, he's non-political. I mean, he's just a, a solid guy, and, and, and that is going to be an investigation into the circumstances surrounding this just colossal collapse of the system at the MCC. The FBI is also going to run a concurrent investigation into that. Now, that is an aside. Now we move to the investigation of the uh, on the island. It's so funny to even think that, you know, it's it's caught and I don't mean that in a flippant way, but the fact that this this island of Jeffrey Epstein's that, you know, all these federal agents showed up to participate in this. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I'm fairly confident that this is going to involve FBI agents, IRS criminal investigative division agents. Obviously, there's going to, you know, you know how it is going back to, and Renato, to throw this to you guys, because you're, you're from Chicago, you know, how did we get Al Capone? It all went back to, you know, the IRS. And I'm sure that following the money, that, that trail, whether it leads to the rich and famous and powerful, whether they're in the UK or in the United States, or whether it involves additional enablers. And I know that we don't have statutes on the federal side for enablers, but there are plenty of crimes that these people can be charged with if, to your point, Patty, and to your point, Renato, earlier, you know, did they know? So it's not just that these crimes occurred, but remember the two pieces of a crime is the actual criminal act, the, the actus reus, and then the criminal mindset, the mens rea. Did they know that what they were doing 
was facilitating this 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 monster's abuse of these of these young kids. So what will they be looking for? My gosh, it is so different from when I was an FBI agent. All I had to worry about was notepads and and the few folks that actually wrote down either a screed or a manifesto, or if it was the mafia, they kept notes on you know numbers running or or who did I get payments or extortionate uh, payments from. Now everything is a digital imprint or a digital footprint. So any type of correspondence, whether it's emails, whether it's uh, cell phone calls, um, whether it's a text, all of that stuff. And look, you know, we have a difficult time with that today because we live in a country, and after every one of these mass shootings, I feel like I have to talk about this ad nauseum, but we live in a country that cherishes its civil liberties and its protections, whether it's its First, first Amendment protection, Second Amendment protection, Fourth Amendment protection. But the problem is that butts up against do we want to have a free society, and where do you draw that line and say, hey, Apple, after the San Bernardino shooting in 2015, we want to be able to access the shooter's phone. Nope, sorry, you can't. That's our proprietary interest. That's going to be an issue here, too, because it's been an issue in the, in the recent three mass shootings we had, the one in Gilroy, California, the next one in El Paso, Texas, and the third one in Dayton, Ohio, was accessing the iPads or the smartphones of the people that perpetrated these heinous acts, and that's what's going to happen here. Now, I believe they will be successful here because Jeffrey Epstein is no longer able to argue against this, and I believe that they will be able to, to do that, but that's what they're going to do. I have a feeling that on the tech side, the technological aspect of this, it is going to be a Herculean task. They're going to bring all that stuff in, and then they're going to have to, they're going to, have to somehow you know, get past the encryption and then get into it and then determine who knew what and when. And isn't that the bottom line in every crime? Who knew what and when? That's what's going to happen, Patty. And the other thing is, uh, listeners wanted to know if there's any role that Attorney General Barr plays in this. Will he be overseeing the material? You know, he oversees it, and, and certainly Renato can speak this more than me. I mean, obviously, all the years I spent in the Department of Justice, and I served under uh, four, five, six different attorney generals, yes, it's going to be under the auspices of his office. He is going to leave this, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here, under the auspices of the, the, the line prosecutors and the U.S. attorney that, that handles that aspect, where in this instance, it's the Southern District of New York and I believe the Southern District of Florida. So um, I, I think it would, I think at this juncture, too, with, with how much he's been in the news and how much pushback he's gotten in regards to so many matters involving the president, I have a feeling he's going to stay on the sidelines on this. Leave this to the, leave this to the U.S. attorneys and their they're career prosecutors that, you know, aren't on any political side or aren't looking to protect this person or not protect this person and let them get to the bottom of it. That's what I hope happens. I hope it's not naive for me to think that, but I do believe that's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm just going to, I'll chime in on that one before kicking it back to Patty for more listener questions. I, I'll just say that um, on the inve- inspector general side regarding his death, that I, as uh, as uh, as as you just noted, I think the inspector general has a measure of independence within the Justice Department. Now, can Barr still interfere? Sure. Um, you know, w- will he do that? You know, would the inspector general make it known if he did? I would like to think he would. Uh, as to the Southern District investigation, uh, I, it's also an office that has a measure of independence. Although, w- you know, there's a, l- a lot of I think 
grounded you know, speculation or concern about the Southern District campaign finance investigation being shut down right around the time that Barr came in. Uh, it could be coincidence, but it certainly could not be. Um, what I would just say on both of those is, you know, I it's not clear to me what the motive is. In other words, what I've seen is on the Republican side, they're also eager to get uh, Epstein's accomplices. Now, it may be that, that there may be some would be there. There might be some motive. There may be something that Epstein's accomplices know that is very damaging to the president or so on. But I guess what I would just say is it seems to me that there's no evidence to suggest that uh, Barr is going to get involved. There's no evidence that suggests to me that he has a motive to do so. Um, and, you know, if anything, what I would expect is this is, I think, a black mark on the Justice Department right now that uh, you have the highest profile inmate, uh, you know, die on their watch. They're going to, I think, want to do everything they can to bring his accomplices to justice. Yeah, I, I, uh, I 100% agree with you there. I mean, there's, there's, there's no there's nothing to benefit from right here by keeping it, sweeping anything under the rug. And obviously it's embarrassing and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's just incomprehensible that this could have happened, but I think he'll stay out of the way on that. I think he's already, uh, in a speech, he's already mentioned that, uh, he wants a full accounting for this. And I trust that that's what the case is. And then in regards to this case itself into Epstein and obviously the sex trafficking and, and who the accomplices were and what the FBI and others find on the island itself and obviously uh, the rest of the things that they're looking into um, going back to, gosh, into the 1990s, I think, is when, you know, we believe that this, uh, you know, that this case first uh, reared its ugly head. I trust that they'll be left alone. I, I think that'll happen, and that's, that, that, that's, that's what I have confidence is going to happen, that they'll get to the bottom of this. I mean, nobody can root for people. I mean, show me somebody that can root for somebody who's involved in the trafficking of underage females. I just, it just it, it boggles the mind that anybody could even in any way think that these pe- people should be cut any kind of slack. You know, there, there do continue to be a lot of questions about Attorney General Barr's participation in this. And one listener asks, uh, do we know, know why he visited the MCC after his first suicide attempt? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, um, you know, I go back to the conspiracy theories. I mean, could, w- would it have been on the calendar? Because I know from having been on Janet Reno's and Eric Holder's protection details while I was in the FBI, I spent some time augmenting those two Attorney General protection details. I know that their schedules are done in advance, and when I say in advance, I'm talking months out. Now, look, do things happen that change the schedule, and do they veer off and do something different? Because obviously, um, the, the criminal justice system requires it, or the news cycle requires it. Yes, absolutely. I do not know. Like, I would have to know if, you know, was this a conversation he had with some of his deputies and said, "Hey, do you think I should make an appearance there?" Um, should I go talk to the to the to the to the warden to the to the you know because this is a member of part of the Federal Bureau of Prisons which answers underneath the Department of Justice that Bill Barr is at the top of. I think that's highly appropriate. Look, if something happened in the interim and somebody found some type of you know undue influence um, or you know or inappropriate pressure, then then that's something different. But I, I'll leave that to the to the reporters and the investigators that come up with that because. Like I said, those schedules are done so far out, obviously, with this suicide happening and being such a high-profile case. And it just seems so inconceivable that this person would have been able to do this while they were at the MCC. And again, I worked in and around the MCC for 20 of my 25 years in the FBI. 
I cannot remember, not to say that it didn't happen, but I was talking to some of my buddies from the early 90s and into the, into the aughts, and I said, can you remember an instance where an inmate, especially a high-profile inmate, was able to take their own life? They said, absolutely not. What happens there is sometimes a, an inmate will attack a guard. That has happened on a number of occasions where they'll, you know, they'll grab a ballpoint pen or something. They'll, they'll try to attack a guard. I cannot recall a suicide. Not that it hasn't happened. I'm sure it has. But I cannot recall one. And for the most high-profile prisoner in the federal system, which Attorney General Barr oversees, to be able to take their life before being held account, man, just raises a lot, a lot of questions. Well, and that's a question. We'll have one more listener question. And they say, what actions can the FBI investigators take to reassure a highly skeptical American public that feels increasingly lied to and victimized by its own corrupt leadership and to protect the case from malicious actors and to hold responsible those participating with Epstein's crimes? Man, I just got chills up my spine on that one, uh, Patty, because that one, that, that one uh, I'm actually, of all the questions you guys are throwing at me, they're all good questions, um, that one I'm the most proud to answer. And look, um, I think it was just this past week, um, I, I believe it was NBC, Pete Williams in particular, that ran a piece that suggested that for the first time in four years, applications to the FBI for the special agent positions are on a huge uptick or surge. And job satisfaction from polling of FBI agents is at an all-time high. And look, it was just a few years ago that uh, it, was, it was so heartbreaking for me to discuss this on CNN, the fact that I think it was an Axios survey monkey um, poll that determined that only 51% of the American public had a favorable view of the FBI. 51%. So one out of two people had an unfavorable view of the FBI, and that is changing. And I think it's a credit to uh, the current director, the eighth director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, who's kind of a much more less loquacious, quiet, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of guy, much, much more similar in the vein to a Robert Mueller than, say, James Comey, that just said, hey, let's let our casework speak for itself. Let's go back to our old way of not kind of, you know, being thrust into the, into the public space in the public square. So I would say this, I I trust that the American public knows and believes that of the 12,000 FBI special agents, the vast, vast, vast majority of them are going to do the right thing. They're going to follow the evidence. They're going to follow it where it takes them bereft of fear or favor. Um, and they're, and they're going to do that without any type of prejudice or implicit biases or, or, you know, or again, prejudging of, of where things should go. So the folks that went out there to that island to investigate it, the folks that are going to be called to the Metropolitan Correctional Center into the dark, dank recesses of the special housing unit to conduct the, uh, the investigation, they're going to do their due diligence. I know some of the people that are going to be assigned to that, they're going to do their due diligence, and I trust that the American public, despite the spin that we in the media, and I'm part of that now, despite the spin that they'll hear from pundits or quote-unquote experts or, or people with opinions, that the American public believes a fair shake will be done here. A proper investigation will be conducted. We'll get to the answer. Whether you agree with it, I agree with it, or Joe Q. Public agrees with it, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and it will be a fair and it will be a prejudice-free investigation. That's my hope. Yeah, well, it's certainly my hope as well. And I will just say, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I worked with many 
FBI agents and other law enforcement agents. And that was, in, many, in my opinion, the best part of that experience in my job. I made so many friends and, and developed such a deep respect for so many of the people that I worked with. And um, it's it, that was part of the reason why I originally started talking on social media about some of the things that I did, uh, particularly attacks on the FBI and law enforcement and the judiciary. I didn't like that uh, coming from the president. And I have to say that Trump's attacks on the FBI, I think, have had a, a, a bit of a corrosive impact. And I don't like the fact that now, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, people don't have any faith uh, in the system whatsoever. And there, frankly, there are issues with our system. It needs to be greatly reformed. I talked about mass incarceration earlier and other things. I appreciate uh, the, the need for reform, but I do think that um, it's really, there's been some real harm that's been, that's been brought to the system uh, by Trump. And I I really hope that at some point we can look back on this and at least the vast majority of Americans can feel that they've learned the truth about this investigation because I don't uh, look forward to hearing conspiracy theories for the next uh, two decades of my life. Uh, yeah, I, again, uh, I, I know it's not titillating for the listener, but uh, I'm going to agree with you there too. So, you know, I, I know that, uh, not that that's what the subject of this podcast is, but when, when the when the president had his initial you know, headbuttings or his disagreements with the FBI. I argued, um, and at the time I did it emphatically and 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 with with the true belief that that, that that's the case. That he was specifically targeting certain people that made some colossal errors in judgment and made some mistakes at the upper echelons of the FBI, including people I knew personally, including people that worked for me that you hear in the news all the time now and are no longer with the FBI. And I I argued that, and you know what. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that can come back now, here we are a couple of years later, and say, I was wrong. It has had a deleterious effect on what the American public feels about their trust and confidence in not just the FBI, but also in the intelligence community as a whole, the IC as a whole. So to your point, Renato, I agree with you. And I was wrong because, like I said, I wrote op-ed after op-ed. I argued on the air at CNN that I thought that people would be able to discern or differentiate his attacks on the Comeys and the Bruce Wars and the Annie McCabe's and the Peter Strzok's and Lisa Page's from his attacks on the FBI. But, and I'm not suggesting that the American public is dumb. They certainly are not. But I don't think they see a differentiation between what the president's doing to those people and those former public servants, whatever you think of them, positively or negatively, and the way that he views the IC, of which the FBI is a part of, the intelligence community as a whole. I think his comments have had an extremely deleterious effect on the trust and the confidence that the American public has in an industry that, especially post 9-11, has just done yeoman's work in keeping this country safe. I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a, a great, uh, great way of ending this. I, you know, frankly, um, hopefully, we've brought a lot of um, sort of a reality check for people because there's been so much speculation, and, and as I mentioned earlier, some people saying saying all sorts of things that I think are are not uh, founded or not accurate. Hopefully, we were able to keep people, uh, you know, in kind of in the reality based community and seeing, you know, how how you know what we can really expect going forward. So, thank you so much. You guys be good. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 